Good morning. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as you can see from this slide, we are not talking about sex today. We are moving past that series. But one cool thing we saw throughout the sex series is that God brought a lot of healing as we looked at how um, our sexuality has been deformed, as sin and brokenness has caused us to view our, our sexuality incorrectly, and how Jesus reforms our sexuality to see the beauty that our sexuality is within the context of who Jesus says we are. And as we transition to a book that a lot of you probably have never heard of, or you forget, like, what is it even about? Um, my encouragement to you is still to press in, that there's, there's much that we can learn about how we can be formed into the image of Jesus. So with that, I want to tell you a little bit about my grandma. So my grandma is a big fan. <laughs> yeah, good. thank you, thank you. My grandma is a big fan of Lifetime TV, ESPN, um, the Hallmark Channel, and CNN. So a very diverse smattering. And, what, and so anytime there's a sporting event, there's a news headline, there's like a, a movie she watches, she has to call me and tell me about it, give me like the play-by-play. -play. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's fantastic. But what all these things have in common is they're all built on narratives. And so if you watch ESPN for your sporting news, they'll tell you about like the Raptors and the Warriors and give you a sense of where, there we go, we have some Warriors fans. They'll give you a, a sense of where have they been throughout the season, about like why you should be thinking about, um, like how you should be thinking about them, or for the Raptors, where they have have been they build this story around who they are or for for CNN or for anything they'll give you handles for like how to understand the news events you see the stories give us a way to understand our world and those things around us um, they provide us with like simple narratives so for Hallmark we could probably come up with a Hallmark movie right here and it would be better than a lot of the movies it doesn't take much it's very simple and that doesn't mean they're always like terrible stories, sometimes they are, but it's just they're simple stories. And so for myself, I know when I was younger, I preferred these more simple stories where it was easy to tell who the good guy was, who the bad guy was. So you're watching Lion King and you're like, all right, Simba, he's the good guy. He's my homeboy. Scar, I'm not so sure about this guy. And that sort of plays out. You're like, yeah, I didn't trust Scar the entire time. And then now Simba goes through his journey to figure out who he is, to take on his mantle being the king's son. Um, there's a sense of like, here's the good guy. Here's the story. And it's a good story, even though the narrative might be built around these more simple pictures of who the good and bad guy is, that's okay. But as I've gotten older, I find I like more ambiguous stories. I find myself enjoying these stories where it's not so clear who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. I actually find myself like cheering on the good guy and booing the bad guy. And maybe it ends and, it, and it, Hannah would say like, I don't even know if that was a good ending. Was this, was this even a happy ending? Like, I don't know. But when they're done well, they're stories that help us to understand and maybe ask questions about who we are or about maybe these different concepts in the world. They, they cause us to think. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a story that does the same thing. We're looking at a book, um, the story of Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, that acts in the same way. We're going to see these, these guys as they long for and they hope for renewal. They long to see the restoration of things. They long to see the promises made to their ancestors come to fruition. So they long for these things. They're going to do things that we cheer for them in. They're going to do things that we kind of like scratch our head and say, huh, it's kind of a strange way they go about it. Or like, huh, 
I'm not sure that's entirely the right decision to make here. Um, but they're wrestling with the broken human heart and they wrestle the same things that we wrestle with. Like we have decisions where we, we make a decision and sometimes it's, it's like the, a good decision and sometimes we're not so sure if that was a good decision. We see ourselves and we can learn from these guys. And so we can learn a lot from this book about, um, about renewal, about restoration. We can learn from their successes and from their failures as well. So Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and um, Ezra all longed for renewal. And this word renewal, um, another way to say it is revival. And I'm using the word renewal to talk about sort of the spiritual renewal of all things. I think revival can have some baggage with it. Um, and there's some really good things as we think of revival. We think about people coming to know the Lord, their hearts being changed. But with it, there's some maybe negative connotations about like charlatan preachers, guys who are just making, faking things and enforcing people into certain, like to give money or try to fake miraculous events of God. So in focusing on renewal, I think it captures the same thing. And it also, it, it aligns with what Jesus is doing in reconciling heaven to earth and bringing about the change of our heart that Jesus makes us new creations. And so if, it, it's, if it's helpful for you, if you don't have that same sort of like negative connotation with revival, um, as we talk about renewal and revival to think about that, then that's like totally fine. But I think for our, for this morning, I want to focus on that word renewal. And this series itself, um, as we look at Nehemiah, we're looking at returning, renewing, and restoring. As these, as these guys, as the Israelites returned to the land, um, they renewed and their, like, their commitment to the covenant they had with God. And as they looked at it, and they hoped for the restoring of all things, the promises of the new covenant. And Ezra and Nehemiah are traditionally read as one book. They, they tell one story. They tell one narrative. And so I'm, this morning, I'm going to be diving into the story of Ezra, jumping around into that. So hold on, hang tight. We're going to be jumping around a lot. But as we look at this whole idea of preparing for renewal, um, as we talk about this idea of preparing our hearts for renewal, I want to pull out three things that we can see in the book of Ezra and then Nehemiah 1 that as we prepare ourselves for renewal. The first is as we prepare for renewal, the first step in that is reestablishing our identity in Christ, reestablishing who we are in Jesus, reminding ourselves who Jesus says we are, and even starting to practice rhythms and disciplines that remind ourselves as a community and as an individual of those things, like things like worshiping together, having communion, solitude, reading our Bible, certain forms of prayer, these practices that are good for us. The second is having our hearts broken for those around us, what Mark Sayers likes to say, a holy discontentment with the way that things are. No longer being satisfied with how we see things happening in our community, um, seeing our neighbors not know the Lord, just seeing brokenness around us and saying, oh Lord, like come Holy Spirit, bring change. And thirdly, and most importantly, it's partnering with God and what he's already doing in our midst and, and seeing how the Spirit is moving and partnering with him, knowing that ultimately God brings about renewal. We have the opportunity to participate with him in that. Ezra and Nehemiah try to make renewal happen on their own terms. Um, we're going to see that, that some of the things they do, it's them trying to make it happen the best that they can. And as followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit and are able to hear and follow God more closely than they were. Uh, and we do not need to make renewal happen on our own. So like I said before, we're going to be jumping around a bit around Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, but I think just as a way to kick us off, I'm going to be reading Nehemiah 1 to 11. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. The verses will be on the screen. Um, you can follow along. 
Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. I'm bad with these names. And that happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are, your, outcasts are, um, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one that brings renewal in the hearts of men. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are working and active. We come against the lives of the enemy in the name of Jesus right now, where there is um, fear, where there is uh, words of judgment, where people feel like they are comparing themselves to these characters or trying to measure up with what they could be. We come against those lies in the name of Jesus. We speak peace, we speak freedom, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in among us today as we talk about renewal and that you would bring renewal in our midst. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we, we kind of just jumped in there with, with talking about this story. Nehemiah is picking up this narrative from Ezra, so it does kind of feel like we're jumping into the two towers, or we're jumping into Empire Strikes Back. Without that background, we're just like hitting the ground running. You're like, I don't know what's going on. I've never met this guy. There's something I'm missing out on. So we're going to get to that. Like, hang with me. We'll get there. But first, uh, first I want to point out that what does Nehemiah say in his prayer about Moses? He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your, outca your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. The Bible is full of hyperlinks to other parts of the Bible. Uh, it's full of like you, you read one thing and then in your Bible sometimes there's like a little A and it'll say, oh, this, you find it on the page, like wherever that is. And it says like, oh, this is from this verse or this is from that verse. Well, the Bible does do that, direct quotes, but sometimes it'll just use like one turn of phrase, like one statement, and it's, it's evoking entire sections of the Bible. Psalm 1 describes the scriptures as, as meditative literature. And that word meditative in Hebrew means like to chew on something. It's the same uh, word that they would use to describe 
how a bear eats and that kind of like munching sound as they're eating things. That's the same way that the, that Psalms describes how we are to read the Bible, that we're to chew on it, we're to sit with it, we're to read it over and over and over. And it's not something like for a lot of us, we approach it and we may not know what he's referring to at first and that's okay. It's something that we learn over as we read it over and over. But it's like the movies we know. It's like Star Wars. It's like The Office. We make like we make one line, we make one reference to it, and suddenly it's like, oh, we're thinking of entire episodes, or we can say, like, Luke, I am your father, and it's like, oh, we know, like, what's going, you know the whole story, we have this whole um, relationship between Darth Vader and Luke in our head, um, but I think one thing I've seen for a lot of people in, within the church I've talked to, at least in some of this community, is uh, The Office. How many people who have seen the TV show The Office? Raise of hands. Uh, once, how about twice? Three times? For, you could do like a wedding game of like just keep your arms raised and at the end of it it's just like this person gets a prize or something like that. It, it's, it's, we're used to having like certain TV shows or movies where we watch it over and over. It becomes second nature. It becomes sort of like how we see our world. We think about our own coworkers or bosses at work and think like, oh yeah, my boss is just like Michael Scott. And, oh man, that really sucks for you. And it's like we, we understand what these things mean and they become a way that we see our world and our reality. Well, the Bible works the same way, that for Nehemiah, for Ezra, Zerubbabel, for Jesus, they read this text and they read it over and over and they see themselves in it. They see their hopes and their dreams and and what it talks about. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, of the Israelite nation, that becomes their own story and their own defining moments. The the hopes that it talks about, the future promises, that becomes their promises. It's it's their office that they, they revisit and they chew on and they meditate about. But what is that story? I think it's, it's helpful to kind of revisit it and say like, well, what is that story? For a lot of us, maybe it's, we need to be reminded and that's okay. For some of us, we've never read through all of the Bible. It's something that can be hard. It's a long book. I totally get it. But I think it can be helpful to take a look at it, even from a 30,000 foot view to say, well, what was Nehemiah's story? This thing is he's quoting from Moses. What is it that he has in mind as he's praying and as he's hoping about returning to Jerusalem? So I want to take us through sort of a summary of what's the story so far up to this point. Well, all begins with an author, a beautiful mind, and within the story, he's referred to as God. And he has the power to take dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty, and he creates a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment of creation, he creates these creatures that are called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. And he makes them in his image, which means that they are commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its creative potential and creating even more beauty and order. And this is a story that is about humans who are supposed to use their power to do meaningful life-giving work. But the question is sort of like, how will this play out? Well, humanity faces a choice in the garden, and that choice is represented by a fruit tree. Humans can either partner with God and find freedom in his definition of good and evil, or they can do that on their own. They can seize power and they can define good and evil on their own terms. And at this point, a dark, mysterious creature comes onto the scene and he tells humanity, the choice is simple. Just take from the fruit. Just define good and evil on your own. That's the best way that you can accomplish what God has asked you to participate in. Well, humanity 
seizes that power. And as a result of it, there's this, we call it in the Bible, sin, this propensity towards um, self-protection and violent power grabs. Humanity becomes uh, suspicious of each other. It starts to snowball out of control with turning and defining good and evil on our own terms. And humanity is removed from that garden. And it kind of culminates within this first part of the story in the creation of the city called Babylon, where evil has been defined at good. And at this point, God scatters humanity all across the world. And at this point, the story zooms in on one family. And for the rest of the Bible, the story is going to be about this one family, a man named Abraham and Sarah that God makes a promise to. And God says that through your, uh, through your children, I will bring about um, I will like, provide the opportunity to make a better choice, to walk through and choose to define good and evil on God's terms and to open up an opportunity for all of humanity um, to make the right choice. And if they succeed, like I said, it'll open up a way for the rest of humanity. So this is why the rest of the Bible ends up being about this family. But despite God's personal guidance with this family, they fail. They continue to find good and evil, define good and evil on their own terms. They continue to give in to that same mysterious voice from the beginning of the story. As this family grows into an entire nation of people, um, we read throughout the Bible, they've become an entire nation. They have rulers who we're told have hearts after God's own heart. Even they fail. Even the best of them can't hold up and can't manage to live out in defining good and evil in God's terms and in God's own terms. They give in to the temptation. So Israel was warned by their prophets that the choices to define good and evil would lead them back into exile, would lead them back into Babylon from that beginning of the story. But this time they would be captives. The family would find themselves as captives in Babylon. Even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. So the question ends up being, well, who can succeed? The prophets also said that the story was not over. There's not, at this point, at their own failure, the story is not over. There's a promise that God is going to send a new ruler to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And this is the point where we find Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. This was their story. They knew that so far, that family that we've been following, they haven't been able to, to do the right thing. But that there's a promise that God is going to make it right, that God will bring restoration. And that is the hope that they hold on to as we look at them returning out of exile back into the land. That's the hope and promise that they look forward to. So it's helpful to sort of see like that's what Nehemiah has in the back of his head as he's praying, he's holding on to certain promises. Like this one from Deuteronomy 30, um, 5 to 8. It's like this is their office, you could say. Uh, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that they will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord, your Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. This is the hope that they had in exile. They longed to be back in their land. They longed for the renewal of the heart and for the forgiveness of sins. But like I said before, Ezra and Nehemiah are traditionally read as one book. So it's helpful for us to actually look a bit at what the book of Ezra says. 
And I think as we look at the book of Ezra, we can begin to learn more about what I said before about the preparing our hearts for renewal. And the book of Ezra paints Ezra to be like a new Moses. As we follow along in the opening chapters, the things that Ezra does, it sort of prepares the reader to say, oh, this is similar to when, when Moses came out of Egypt, when the Exodus happened. And even as we read Nehemiah, we'll see Nehemiah is painted as like Joshua and like, oh, maybe what he's doing is like a new conquest. So as you're reading it and as you have those sort of that story in mind, you're supposed to think, oh, maybe this is it. Like maybe this is gonna happen. Maybe we finally, we finally made it. And within the story of Ezra, we see that they return to the land. Zerubbabel helps to rebuild the temple. Ezra helps them to re, like, re-establish their own uh, religious practices, um, but ultimately it fails. But I think we can learn that first sort of element of preparing for renewal and that we reestablish our identity. Ezra 6, 19 to 22 says, On the 14th day of the month, they returned, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves to, uh, together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. The Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And this is the first time that the Passover has been celebrated since the exile. So the Israelites are in their land. God removes them from the land. And for 70 years, they had not practiced the Passover. Their, their typical rituals and these like, festivals that they had that they needed the temple for. But now that the temple has been rebuilt, this is the first time they get to practice it. And this is a huge part of who they are as a people. What is the Passover meal? What is the meal that they're celebrating? Well, the Passover meal is a reminder to the Israelites of God bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt, out of bondage. The Israelites and now that we see for Ezra have returned to the land and are keeping the meal of freedom from bondage. It's a meal that celebrates sort of the same things of them coming out of Egypt and them coming out of Babylon. So they see a similarity that, oh, this is maybe a new exodus that's taking place. But it's a meal that reminds the Israelites ultimately who they are as individuals and who they are as a people. Renewal begins as the people of God grab hold of Jesus Renewal begins as we begin to hear the heartbeat of our Savior. Renewal begins when we turn towards Jesus and ask him who we are. And that includes pressing into our pain and brokenness, learning more about ourselves, being willing to seek help for where where we've experienced deep woundedness, that as we walk through this life, as we walk through a broken world, that we, we experience pain. We experience like deep hurt from others in our lives. And we have the opportunity, like pressing into that pain, seeking help with like healing prayer, deliverance prayer, even learning about like ourselves through um, like Enneagram or personality. Like those tools can be useful in helping us to um, learn more about who we are, not for the sake of just learning it and saying that's great, but in partnership with pressing into who Jesus says we are and focusing on, as we learn about ourselves, we press into and ask Jesus, what do you, who do you say I am? Who am I? And that also means we accept who we are. As we sort of press into that, it's coming to a, a, a posture of acceptance of who Jesus has made us, where we have brokenness and being okay with that. And from that place, being able to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, be faithful to what he's called us to, but accepting, yeah, I have pain and I have brokenness and that's okay. Jesus has accepted me just as I am.
And like I mentioned before, it includes disciplines and rituals. And, and sort of like I, I said, for us, we see um, our, our Passover meal is communion, that as we take these elements, it's our meal on the way. It's our Passover as we worship together, as we read our Bible, as we meet in life groups. These sort of rituals, they remind us of who we are as individuals and as, as the body of Christ. And it's not something that we do for the sake of like, I need to earn favor. That's a danger that we do it for the sake of like, oh, I'm, I'm just, I gotta look good. I have to get this done. But no, these are disciplines that remind us and remind each other of who we are in Jesus. And sharing life with each other, we can encourage each other on towards Christ-likeness. We can see what it is like to follow Jesus together. The goal is always Jesus, not the disciplines and rituals. As we, as we take communion, as we worship, even as we, we have solitude, we practice certain forms of prayer, of reading scripture, the goal is always Jesus. The goal is not the, the, goal is not the like, ritual I'm doing. It can be a helpful means towards pressing in and, and allowing myself to connect with what the Spirit's doing, but the goal should always be the Spirit. Brennan Manning puts it this way, what establishes preeminence in the Christian community is not apostleship or ecclesiastical office, nor titles or territory, not the charismatic gifts of tongue, tons, healing, prophecy, or inspired preaching, but only our response to Jesus' question, do you love me? As Sean reminded us so well last week in talking about John 21, the sense of Jesus coming to Peter and saying, do you love me? That as we, as we go through these rituals that we're, we're interacting with Jesus in this way and we're learning to sort of respond to that question of, well, do you love me? And that's a part of how these, these rituals, these practices shape who we are in reestablishing our identity in Jesus. Renewal begins as the body of Christ is unified around passionately following Jesus. Renewal begins as the body of Christ begins to passionately pray for the Spirit to move in our midst. But the danger is that we hold too much to our programs, our patterns, these rituals that we hold to them and not to God, not to the empowerment of the Spirit. So those who have read Ezra and Nehemiah might be more familiar with their failures. You might be more familiar with what they do that we kind of scratch our heads at or are really confused with when we close the book. The leaders of Israel end up pushing away outsiders, the, the people that are not like them, they push away. They misuse the scriptures to push and call the Israelite a certain ethnic race, and they push for having segregation to say, if you're not with us, if you're not actually like, genetically like us, then you're not, you're not a part of this holy race. So they actually misuse the scriptures in that way. And Ezra ends up issuing a decree based on like, listening from the leaders of telling the leaders of Israel to divorce from their wives that they had intermarried with from the peoples of the land. So they do things that we're supposed to say, like, this is strange. This doesn't seem consistent with the character of God. This week, in addition to the sermon questions, um, I'll be linking an excerpt from a commentary that talks more specifically to that part of Ezra. I know it's, we unfortunately don't have time to like dive into all of Ezra. I think you could do like multiple sermons on that and it should like, it, it needs that. And so, but what I will provide is just some, like a, an excerpt from a commentary that I think does a good job of talking more specifically about those hard parts of Ezra and how we're supposed to understand them. But I will say this, 
that all of scripture is profitable for training in godliness. We know from 2 Timothy that the scriptures that we read are profitable for us being raised up in Christ's likeness, and then we can learn wisdom in that. So we should be able to read these books and say, okay, what is the wisdom that I can take away for following after Jesus? And sometimes that also means being able to say, like, hey, I don't, these guys didn't know Jesus, and like, they don't have the same lens that I have for understanding scripture, so I don't have to follow what they're saying. What they're saying is not prescriptive necessarily, but in a descriptive sense, I can understand some of the things I did in a good light. And Ezra is doing something here that Christians in every era of the church have had to do. So there's, there's problems that arise that we see in the culture, we see in the church, that maybe it's not, we're not so sure how to approach it. It's not so obvious in scripture what to do. And so what he did is he examined the scriptures and came up with a solution that was from his own understanding of what the scriptures were saying about him as an Israelite and about the peoples of the land. So it was a very specific way of understanding that. And that doesn't mean that his solution was the best solution to the problem. Just because it's there in the Bible doesn't mean that it's like, well, I guess that was the best thing that he could do. But when we have those same problems, as we approach those questions where it's like, I'm not so sure there's a clear answer, we have to come humbly before God, ask the Spirit for wisdom, turn to the scriptures and wise counsel, and then we make a decision. And sometimes that decision is like a great decision and we can say that was right. And sometimes we'll come to it and say, I don't know if that was the best decision. I had to make a decision in this case, but we have to then rest on God's grace and know ultimately God is good and that he is kind and that even in our brokenness and when we make decisions that aren't the best, that he can use them for the sake of his glory and bringing about renewal. But practicing segregation, banning interracial marriage, building walls to keep others out are things that are not prescriptive parts of the Bible. We shouldn't look at those and say, that's what we always have to do. That was specific to what Ezra thought and Nehemiah thought was the best way to accomplishment. But our lens that we view scripture through is Jesus and what Jesus says about others, what Jesus says about who we are and how to see the world. That's the lens that we are to use in approaching the problems that we see outside or even understanding the decisions that some of these guys make that make a scratcher head. But because Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah are not perfect role models, they're flawed humans like you and I, that they're just trying their best, but they're still dealing with the problem of sin that we see in our own midst, this problem of the broken human heart that we run into, our own flaws, our own failures. No matter how much Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah attempt to make renewal happen in their own strength, it doesn't happen. They keep trying to make fetch happen, but it doesn't happen. So it just doesn't work out. So reading Ezra can be something that makes us feel a little uneasy at times, and that's okay. Like, it's okay to read it and say, like, I'm not so sure what Ezra did was right. It should, it should cause us to think, like, maybe, there, maybe there's more for God to do. Maybe this isn't it. It causes us to look forward and remember those promises that we read about earlier, heard in the story from Moses of God circumcising their hearts, the making it, like, allowing them to be able to obey the Lord their God, to follow his commandments. Biblical literature doesn't communicate by offering simple answers and moral examples. Rather, the characters that populate the biblical stories are often deeply flawed. They're often ambiguous and a mixed bag of success and failure. That's kind of like you and me. We also bring that to the table where we have success, we have failure, that we're flawed, but Jesus is good and kind and he's able to make us more like himself. What we can see that was good in Ezra is that he longed to see renewal in Israel. He longed for God to come and move in power. He did the best we could. We can't make renewal happen in our own strength. God is the only one who brings about renewal. We can partner 
with God by turning our gaze towards Jesus as individuals and as a church and ask ourselves and each other, what does it mean to abide in Christ and what is Jesus inviting us into? And as we begin to press into that, the Spirit is faithful in bringing healing to deep brokenness and deep woundedness. And as Paul says, as he talks about the renewing of our mind, our minds can be transformed. The way that we see the world changes, and then God can begin to break our heart for those around us. And that's the second thing that I think we can pull forward about preparing for renewal is our heart breaks for those around us. So the book of Ezra ends, we feel kind of confused, and it jumps ahead about 50 years in time. And so when we go from the end of Ezra to the beginning of Nehemiah, it's been about 50 years. And just to revisit some of Nehemiah 1, uh, Nehemiah 1, 2 to 4, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there and the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart broke for his city. He moved from a posture of just hearing about this to just a posture of prayer, of fasting, of mourning, asking God to move in power in his city. Do we long to see people come to know Jesus? Do we long to see them experience life as it should be? This sort of heartbreak isn't something that we have to manufacture on our own. It can feel like something I have to muster, but it flows after, as we turn to Jesus, as we allow the Spirit to bring healing, as we allow the Spirit to bring um, change to our mind. This sort of a heartbreak can flow from that. It doesn't have to be something that we force. And if, if I'm honest, this is where I struggle. That a lot of times as I go to work or as I see my neighbors that don't know Jesus, or if, even as I look at the problems in Fullerton, like the homeless problem and things like that, the, the fact that in Fullerton it's, it's so divided in neighborhoods that I, I honestly, like a lot of days, struggle with really caring. I can be so focused just on what I'm doing that this part of renewal, having my heart broken for things, is, is actually difficult for me. Um, but I don't think that we have to just say, this is hard, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh, I believe we, we move from a posture of just not caring about it into a posture of having our heart broken. And it starts when we sit and we invite the Holy Spirit into our day. We sit and we invite God into our moment. As I, as I get up in the morning asking God, like asking the Holy Spirit, come and meet with me. As I go to work, help me to see my, my coworkers the way that you see them. As I go home, as I look at the problems in the city, asking God, like, help me to understand and help me to see things the way that you do. It starts with us inviting the Holy Spirit in. That sort of first thing, reestablishing who we are in Jesus. We partner with God by moving from a posture of consuming in our culture to contending. From merely consuming within the church, just coming, hearing a message and saying, that was nice, and going on. From looking at the problems in our culture and saying, like, well, I can't do anything about it, to contending and being willing to ask God, God, help me to see things the way that you see them. Help me to understand your heart about this thing. And even if it's starting with one thing and choosing, I'm going to pray for this. I'm going to focus in on this. And it might just be one person. It might just be um, like one small thing. It doesn't have to be fix the entire world. But God, give me a heart for this one thing. We begin to contend for the kingdom of heaven to advance in our neighborhoods, our workplace, and our city. But like I said, and I want to reemphasize, it's not something that we're doing in our own strength. We're participating in what God is already doing. That story that I mentioned earlier, that Ezra and Nehemiah knew so well, it goes on. That there's more to the story. 
So Ezra and Nehemiah, they, fe- they fail at their task. They return to the land, they reinstate, they build the temple, they reinstate the religious practices, but then ultimately the, the people still have their heart hardened, that we're going to see, spoiler alert, that this rebuilding doesn't work out, that ultimately the people like, aren't obeying God the way that they were hoping they would. So the question still remains, who will solve the problem? How will the forgiveness of sins come? How will the renewal of our hearts come? So after the book of Ezra, there is a 500-year silence that the Israelites are waiting for 500 years. But then a man named Jesus comes onto the scene, and he says that he is bringing all the promises of the story so far to their conclusion, to their completion. He confronts that dark, mysterious power from the beginning of the story, and he resists its temptation. He announces that God has arrived to rule the world through himself. He teaches us about God's definition of good and evil rather than our own. He says that real power comes as we serve others, that real power is come, is, comes from laying down our lives for others. He says that those who love the poor and love their enemies are those that actually rule the world. What he brings is an upside-down kingdom that changes what we would assume is power, what we would assume it looks like to have control in the world, and he flips it on its head. The story tells us that Jesus is God become man, to be for Israel and for humanity what we could never be for our own. He takes the consequences of evil into himself. He takes that brokenness, that pain, that death, that violence, all those things, he takes into himself. And his sacrificial love is more powerful than evil and even more powerful than the grave. Humanity now is presented with a new choice. It's presented with a new tree. Either to continue on and defining good and evil on our own terms, or we can choose to follow Jesus and be made new, may be made into a new creation. And those who choose to follow Jesus are filled with God's power. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're given a new way to be human, a new way to define good and evil that's on God's terms and not our own. Our, their identity is changed, and, and then knowing that they are loved and forgiven by God, they're able to love and forgive others. Life is still difficult. It doesn't mean that it's all easier, but in following Jesus, uh, we find that there is so much more um, meaning. There's that meaningful life is there. And those who follow Jesus look forward to the day when he will return, when he will return and change everything, when all the wrongs are made right, when heaven and earth are unified and humanity can rule the world with God. And this is the story we find ourselves in. This is our story. This is the story that we look forward to. We see Jesus has come, and that we can walk in what he has accomplished and we can look forward to the day when he returns and makes all things new. Ezra tried to see renewal in his own strength and it did not happen. That will happen to us. There'll be times that we feel like I want to see God move and we pray and we pray and for whatever reason in God's sovereignty, we don't necessarily see it happen. But Jesus reminds us that there'll be those who plant the seed, those who water, and those who reap, and that all of those pieces are incredibly important in the process of renewal, that God is able to use us in changing the hearts of men and bringing change to a city. Um, yeah, and it's so beautiful that we get to be a part of that. We partner with God in bringing about the renewal of all things by reclaiming who we are in Christ. We partner in God in bringing about renewal by having our hearts broken for those around us, and we partner with God in renewal by moving towards prayer and dependence on God in all things. But only he can bring about renewal. He's the only one who does this. We're participating with him. We're not making renewal happen on our own. 
And what, what that can maybe look like is we're actually joining together with other churches in our city. And we look at the other churches in Fullerton and that's coming together and praying around these different things in Fullerton we want to see God and God move in. Looking at how we could work together, how we can join with what's already happening in the city. And it's devoting ourselves to prayer for God to move, for seeking him. It starts as we worship God, as we just pray our hearts out and pray, God, come Lord Jesus, come. Move in the city, bring change. You cannot make renewal happen in Fullerton on your own. Only by the work of God does renewal happen. We can begin to align our hearts with God as we ask ourselves questions like, what is my identity? Who is the person I'm becoming by following Jesus? What is Jesus inviting me into for this next season of life? And what does it mean for me to be the beloved? What does it mean for me to be adopted by Jesus? I'm not asking you in all of this to like keep judgment on yourself, to feel like, oh, now here's more things I have to do, more things that I have to do to be better. But I'm asking you in a sense to, to turn towards God and to sit in a posture of receiving and saying, God, I'm here. I'm yours. Make me more like your son. Help me to see myself the way that you say I am. Help me to see others the way that you, say, that you see them. And embracing our identity as loved by Jesus. And what is true of Jesus is true of you. What Jesus, what the Bible says of Jesus and who he is, as we're in Christ, is true of us. This morning, I invite you to ask yourself, do I long for renewal in my midst? Is this something that I, like for myself, sometimes like I would have to say, no, I don't long for it as much. Do you long for renewal in your midst? For those that answer no, my challenge is to stop and turn to Jesus. He's okay with our struggle. Like we shared this morning, we don't need to hide our shame from him. We don't need to hide what we perceive as brokenness from him, that he, he can take it. He's not afraid of that. He's our shepherd. He is good and he is kind and he is faithful. We can turn to him with our pain and even our confusion at why I don't long for, um, long for renewal in my midst. And I invite you, in, for people in your life group or someone in the church, to, to tell them about this, to, to share that struggle with them and invite them into praying with you about that struggle. And then another challenge actually throughout the series is maybe to pick, like I said before, one thing. Maybe it's um, a, a friend, a coworker, someone in your neighborhood, or, or some sort of problem that you see. Just one thing to be praying for and devoting yourself to prayer throughout the series. That as we think about um, preparing ourselves for renewals, we long to see renewal happen, for there to be change, for, for God to move in power. Pick one thing one thing that you want to see happen. And, and this week, um, if you're meeting in a life group, share that with your, with your life groups. They can join you in praying for that to ask you, hey, how's that going? Like, how's that been? How have you experienced God in your own life uh, as you pray for that? Or if you're, if you're not meeting in the month of June, just share with someone else in the community. Like, hey, I'll be praying for this. Um, join me in praying for that. I think it can be helpful to begin to train, train our hearts to, to pray for something. If we just start with something small, it doesn't have to be the whole world. It can just be one friend. For those who feel like they have to make renewal happen on their own by following some sort of a plan or a manual, or they look at like the history of how renewal happened, and oh, I gotta do this, and then I gotta do this, and then I gotta pray this way and that way, my challenge to you is to stop and listen to what the Spirit is saying and how God is leading. For all of us who follow Jesus, my encouragement is that God is able to make us more like Jesus. That it's the Holy Spirit who's transforming our minds into Christ's likeness, that ultimately God is the one who's on the move, and we are just, by God's grace, participating in what he's already doing. 
He is the sovereign Lord over all things, and he is the one that moves in power to bring about huge acts of renewal. And we have the opportunity to join with him by the empowerment of the Spirit. Ben, you can come on up. Some stories are just stories that we stop and we listen to. They're just stories that provide an escape, but nothing more. It's just entertaining. Like maybe like the Marvel movies. There's not much there outside of just like the fun explosions. And that's fine. It's okay to have movies where you're like, that was fun. Great. But other stories are stories that invite us to respond. They're stories that, that actually require an answer to them. And this is one of those stories that asks for a response. For those who have not responded yet to the call of Jesus, Jesus loves you. Jesus is calling for us to respond to him. He is inviting us into a relationship with him to experience life the way that it should be. His offer is to take away our pain, our shame, our brokenness. And instead, he offers love, adoption, a home, a place at a table, at the table to us. He offers us freedom. He offers us peace. He offers us joy. He offers us his own spirit to lead us and to guide us, to partner with him in renewing all things. Jesus has made a way for us to become truly human, to be filled with the spirit of God, and to be a part of participating with him and bringing about renewal. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that renewal does not happen on our own. I thank you that you are sovereign, that you are good, and that you are gracious, and that you are making us more like yourself, that you are more concerned with who we're we becoming in Jesus than necessarily the exact things we're doing. So I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would help us to become more like you. I pray that you would begin to transform our hearts and our minds to long to see you move in our neighborhoods, in our, our jobs, with our coworkers, that we would long to see you break down walls for people to encounter you in power, for entire social structures to be changed because of your spirit moving in power. And I thank you that you, you are doing this, that you will ultimately bring this to completion when Jesus returns, but that we get to start in that process now. So I pray, come Lord Jesus now and transform us. Mm -hmm.